Hello, and welcome to Writing the Coast. I'm your host, Megan Cole, and Writing the Coast is the official podcast of the BC and Yukon Book Prizes. On Writing the Coast, you'll hear conversations with the winners and finalists of the annual BC and Yukon Book Prizes, as well as interviews with book lovers from across the province and territory. My guest for this episode is Cecily Nicholson. Cecily's book, Harrowings, was a finalist for the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. On this episode, Cecily and I talk about the politics of food, and she talks about the role of community and collaboration in her creative work. Cecily starts our conversation with a reading from Harrowings. So um, I I love to introduce Harrowings uh, by its dedication. Um, it's dedicated to my brother, Daniel B., um, playing live at the Stampede, and with love to Carolyn G., wherever you are. Harvard, a hand in relief. Places my hand on a relief cast of carvers. The cast is cool. Hand vibrates to feel the whole surface at once, memory and indent sense of prints, extent, charged, tips, through index and middle metacarpals. It was the passing shadow of a bird, at rest, my hand, settling on Hathaway's sculpture. Associatory, simple elements, the store of atmosphere, pounds of water, brought his property. To situate within genealogy, giving backs to land and intellectual and art history, Idle moments put to gathering, to care, to share food, to not solely succumb to the logics of land, crop, harvest, as required by institutions of slavery and capital. The country wears a rich and luxuriant aspect. In 1854, Frederick Douglass set out from Rochester, New York, to attend a gathering to mark the 20-year anniversary of the West India Emancipation, the 1st of August celebration at dawn settlement for fugitive slaves, traveling most of the 300-mile journey by rail, except 16 miles between Chatham and the settlement referred to by wagon. Douglas journeyed through the traditional territories of the Haudenosaunee, the Mississauga, the Attawandaran, the Anishinaabe, and the Miami nations to arrive in the historic so-called county of Kent. About that 1854 journey, Douglas remarks, in regard to the place itself, it is one of the most beautiful and desirable localities for agriculture, commerce, and education, which we know of in Canada West. I reflect further on fugitivity of that time and upon life in the near aftermath of slavery as the Dominion of Canada formed. The language and logics of farm stem from structures of settler colonialism, even if they embody emancipatory practices, and this makes for complicated dreams. Sufficiently free from the fatigue of this journey rounding the corner to the song, the lark, the light, so familiar, I had to sit. For many voices starts a moth, a lit, a rhetorical Du Bois. Faltering inches of progress, the dawning, as the sundial says to the soil, your auntie up the road just now recalls Well, it is barely spring. Winter lingered this year. We need to dig a new well. 
Knowing enough of septic tanks and cisterns, something of metal alloys comprising pipes, and the insulation prayer that keeps things from bursting on the, cold, on the coldest snow belt nights. Many were awake, but for different reasons, hearing the creaks, knowing enough to be wary. Early lessons in infrastructure, I absolved myself of worry in this future as a renter in a cloud tethered to networks and systems, city miles up from rain barrels and arable, the plan a well could use a diviner in advance and there was something to do and somewhere to start when the pond did not indicate potable. Fallow soil sprouts rocks and thugs and was out of the way. So that happened to be where the diviner encouraged a backhoe to dig. And there, every foot deeper cost money. Adults went to work and children went to school. A whole day returns to no new source. Pinched faces at the window murmur about what will happen should they have to stop. Maybe there's insufficient water on this property and likely more debt. Somatically, somatically, my body remembers farm as a rurally entrenched kid, as I lived once cultivated and punctuated by the occasional bush and ditches that weren't much at all, like these rolling hills songed in mission bells in reach of cemetery lawns across the road away that feel familiar now. Field as playground, ward youth intermittently involved in state care that cared less, I care more and for more about and around me. La Paperson observes that we cannot reckon with how black people are often confronted by the impossibility of settlement because anti-blackness positions black people as out of place on land. Adrift, a current, the harrowing undulatory Deft carves in smooth turns handle a moment or two of river. Where have I been a settler? Is where I am, restored, returning to efforts of cultivation. I think I'll leave it there. Thank you. So I, I read your collection and I've heard you read from it twice. And I think I will always prefer hearing you read it than sitting alone uh, with your books. It's always just so special to hear a poet read their own work the way they kind of hear it. I, I just love it so much. Mm -hmm. Thank you. My first question for you is, who are you? Well, my name is Cecily Nicholson. And I am a poet. Uh, that's my easiest first noun to cling to. Um, and I, you know, I'm an educator and I've come to sort of understand those two roles in recent years as being pretty significant. Um, and I'm also an organizer. So um, I contribute in a number of different places and spaces and ideas in the idea of community. And uh, yeah, those are three things that really define me. I, yeah, maybe I can just start there and you can say more about what you'd like to know, I guess. Yeah. Long we'll story. We'll probably <laughs> dig into all those things as we move through here. Mm -hmm. So we're going to talk about Harrowings and I thought maybe we could start with the title of the collection. Um, mm -hmm. Was that something that you always felt you, you knew the title or was that something that came later for you? Um, the title came somewhere partway through writing this book, for sure. So I didn't start uh, with the title. Uh, I rarely do. Um, and what I usually start with is a working title and it becomes something else. Um, and this went through multiple iterations of a working title. Um, but yeah, there was a point where, do you, well, 
there's sometimes there's words that you come across when you're writing about something that you know you're going to use somehow and harrowing or harrowing was one of them but in and of itself it was not quite sufficient and it's when I put that s on the end and made it a plurality um is when it just opened up for me as a concept so of course there's just the the very literal notion of something being harrowing or harrowing um sorry I oscillate between the two because I've never I hear I grew up with a uh, one pronunciation and I hear um, harrowing more often now. And uh, so there's just the, you know, the literal sense of, of something being um, treacherous and difficult and something that we've gone through typically that's, that's really um, um, scary or frightening. There's also the, obviously the agricultural side of it. So just like literally tilling the soil in a surface level. Um, but when thinking about it in, plur in plural, it, the word itself opened up. The idea of wings appeared. Um, I think of heroines, um, the connotations around, um, you know, the verbiage of it, um, the notion that my experience, of course, all of our experiences are, we have our own moments, but we're always in collectivity. We're always a part of a, a history or ancestry, um, culture, um, and other kinds of experience. So um, knowing that that uh, whatever tale I was going to weave or unfold, it was entwined. Um, yeah, so it started to open up some of those um, meanings for me. Yeah. A couple of places uh, run through this book, and one of those places is Emma's Acres. Um, mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit about Emma's Acres and how it began to inspire you uh, with this collection and creatively? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, Emma's Acres, I um, I have a definition, sort of short form of the description of the place in the book, um, which I, you know, I'll, I'll refer people to for uh, more detail. Um, but in, in short, it's a... Um, a green space um, in so-called Fraser Valley um, that was established um, just under a decade ago. It's been run and led um, by people who are formerly incarcerated. And um, I started volunteering there um, at the early at the beginning of this recent pandemic um, because for a couple of reasons. One is that I have a long practice or long just you know, habit, I guess, um, visiting and spending time with community inside prisons. And during the pandemic, that just simply wasn't possible. Um, these are uh, people that were experiencing an actual lockdown, um, you know, confined to single spaces for, you know, 23 out of 24 hours of the day, um, you know, who, people who lost social programs and all the accordant civil rights um, and community and social um, requirements that are necessary for health and well-being. Um, were stripped of people inside, regardless of their sentencing, their, you know, their punitive sort of status, um, you know, relative to that institution. It was just, it was just awful. So connecting with Emma's Acres was an opportunity to connect to a very close community um, to people inside. So um, whether it was through advocacy networks, um, family, um, and other sort of um, relations, it was a place where we could connect, gather, strategize um, around resources, community advocacy um, on behalf of the communications and, and um, situations that were unfolding over the last couple of years. That farm is also a place where um, low-income families can access good, free food. Um, and um, there are a number of families that have relocated to that area because they have family members who are inside one of the many prisons in that neck of the woods. So, yeah, so there's a lot socially happening there, but it was also just physically necessary and for in terms of my physical and mental health. Um, and then later on, my um, 
uh, good pal, the wonderful poet Mercedes Ng um, as well. And so we've continued to volunteer there. We were just out there yesterday. And it's uh, a place of, of just, um, you know, good labor, uh, where we go home with good food, where we have, uh, you know, a, a like-minded community, um, fresh air, um, and just all the things that, that uh, you know, we need. So so for me, yeah, it was just a deeper kind of engagement and kind of a mutual aid practice that evolved there. Yeah, and then that experience actually really inspired this book. It kind of um, reactivated, and I think about the somatic, it reactivated sort of a, a memory or uh, multiple memories, different kinds of experiences. Growing up as a kid on a farm, where how and where I grew up on a farm was not uh, uh, necessarily a joyful experience in so many ways. Um, the the idea, the labor of it, um, you know, was really hard. Um, I didn't have a lot of intellectual engagement with the place, so I, I kind of understood my relationship to being a farmer on a farm um, as being about work. I had no, um, I had a complete disconnect from growing up from. Um, a history of agrarian culture relative to Black diasporic people um, in that area, let alone in North America or globally. Um, I had no idea um, um, about the history of the Underground Railroad, um, the, the critical presence of populations and settlements at Chatham and Buxton and so on. Uh, it wasn't a part of my public school education. It was, which is just, it's just shameful when I look back on it now. So, um, so I grew up with a quite a dissociated um, relationship to farming and um, its relationship to the idea of being black or the experience of being black, um, which I understood as a child as being inherently an urban experience. Um, and therefore a lack given my situation. So there was a lot that started to unfurl just by being on land, uh, working hard, growing, doing rudimentary um, tasks, but also starting to think about farming, to think about plants, to learn about, um, realize the skills that I had actually, which was a really beautiful thing, I think for any of us when we we, we realized that we actually embody all these things that perhaps we just weren't aware of and, and that it could be something that I shared uh, in a contemporary sense in community now. So, yeah. Yeah. I, I remember in the collection, there's two lines about uh, it's harder to write, I'm paraphrasing, inside, and then it's easier to write outside with your, you know, with your hands in the soil. Um, and I just thought that really kind of captured the spirit of this collection that seemed so in the moment. Uh, was that the process of the book? Were you kind of being out in the land and doing the work and creating at the same time? Or was there more space between those activities? No, it was very much entwined. Um, you know, I, I would, I'd often, you know, it got to the point where, you know, I'd be making voice memos or uh, um, note taking. I did a lot of, I do a lot of um, simple photography and documentation. Um, I did some collaborative projects and, and some sort of art projects that were um, about that place, Emma's Acres, with uh, permission and feedback from people um, there. Um, so it was sort of, it was an ongoing project for me. But that line, and when I think about the inside and the outside, of course, yeah, it connotes um, literally the inside or the outside. It is that metaphor that often stands in for, um, we think about um, prison as being inside. Um, you know, it's a it's a, a dichotomy. It's It's got its limits. Um, but I evoke it in this work as well, because I'm hinting at at, um, or I'm, I'm commenting on the ways in which it's easier for me to talk about growing up on a farm from uh, thinking about that as an outdoor experience, as opposed to the domestic life um, that I had on that farm. So that the house that I grew up in, you know, the red brick home, 
um, and the things that that family there um, and me as part of it um, went through and survived. And I didn't want this book to be so much about that domestic moment um, for lots of reasons, um, minimally just um, as a, out of respect and care um, for for um, other people as well as myself, um, but also just to to um, go more deeply into a book that isn't about to, you know, to extend narratives of trauma. Um, they're ever present, but they, uh, I refuse to, for them to be dominant. So, yeah, so that is also a comment on, you know, when I, I think about that home, it's much more easy for me to write a poem, um, um, looking up at the eaves troughs, looking at the tree that, you know, our swing was attached to the sandbox that we played in the, you know, the very detailed, I remember, you know, that tree so well and, um, the bark and the cherries and the birds and all of that. And they're also beautiful things to share with people. So um, so I centered on that kind of idea. I centered that outside, as it were. Yeah. You can also tell, like, as reading, as I was reading the collection, that so much research went into this work. Are you a person who can lose yourself to research? Or are do you have to, like, put boundaries on it to make sure you don't spend the next 15 years researching a book and there's never a poem. <laughs> yeah, both of those, both of those. Um, yeah. And I learned this from, uh, I learned this mainly from, from the poplars, um, and, which is my first attempt, you know, really directly to, to um, center the methodology, you know, poet, a poetic research methodology from, you know, um, for better, for worse. And um, I put a two year time limit on that project because I knew that if I was if I didn't take care, I would never finish it. This is a problem with any project, of course, but regardless of research. But but just um, you know, with humility, understanding that a project is never going to be complete, and and that it's important still to try to tell some version of the story. So that was the logic that I've learned in previous work. I always do research. I'm I am a researcher, you know. I guess in a in a um, everyday way, um, I. You know, that's partly why and how I read um, and engage and, and learn. But for this book, yeah, I, I was a little more honed in in terms of what I wanted to do. Um, I had a, a, a vast and spiraling project and I knew that it would be, I don't know about irresponsible, but it wouldn't be as uh, fulsome a project if I tried to do too wide of a scope or if I went too wide in terms of the scale. So there are gestures to global movements. There's, you know, I hope um, a um, respectful acknowledgement um, of the many kinds of, of experiences um, relative to this idea of farm, agriculture, cultivation, and so on. You know, I'm I'm uh, stuck in and um, defined by particular uh, economic and cultural traditions um, that are more contemporary and so-called Western kind of modes. And so, yeah, the limits of that, it was necessary for me to kind of acknowledge and kind of scale down in a certain way. So to that end, I really centered the um, some of the research on that particular area in proximity to where I grew up. I, I sought out some support um, and, you know, worked in particular archives. I, in the back of the book, I'm, I'm just looking at... Um, reminding myself of who I thanked, but Nina Reed Maroney in particular, um, who worked um, works out of uh, Huron University College at uh, Western, was a really key help. So somebody with deep deep history and historical research um, in the area that was very relevant to what I was working on. So so yeah, so this moments and conversations with with um, historians and other uh, practitioners helped hone that project for me this time. Um, so that my reading um, and references were quite selected. And because also 
there is so much and there's always so much in any other text that you pick up. And um, the other really key narrative that I pull through, of course, is George uh, Washington Carver's um, writing, you know, a reference to earlier uh, sculpture, the, a cast of, of his hand is where I begin the book. And I just was fascinated and am fascinated by this person's intellectual work through time. And so, yeah, so I chose a few of these moments to try to pull in, but by no means is this a, a deeply researched book, in my opinion. Yeah. It's hard with topics like this because as I was reading, I, I couldn't help but think about the politics of food, which is something I'm endlessly interested in and and a writer uh, and podcaster that I really enjoy, Alicia Kennedy, always mm -hmm. starts her podcast by asking um, if the, her guest thinks of food as a of cooking as a political act, um, because, you know, she she really believes like how how can we separate food from politics, right? Like it just like f cooking, eating, cultivating food is such a political act. Um, and, mm -hmm. and I wondered how your feelings around the politics of food and food production shifted and, and changed through the creation of this work and your, your ongoing involvement at Emma's acres too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You know, as you're, you're talking, I reached for this book because it's just so yes. beautiful. You <laughs> yeah. come across it. So I Black have one food. of his other cookbooks actually. Uh, okay. Yeah. Um, so Black Food by uh, Brian Terry and, and uh, this piece is like, I just love it because it is, you know, it's recipes and there's, you know, sort of a history and context for the food itself um and uh, but it's it's um um steeped in philosophy and literature and poetics and to me which all of which um have deep commentary in terms of the realm of the political um so when we think about the politics of food i mean uh what do we mean by that i guess um is probably a good thing to to think through and i um you know just the idea of access and economy um immediately um, yeah, the world is profoundly imbalanced in terms of the ways that food is distributed, grown, and um, and uh, consumed. And it's um, you know it's pretty pretty akin to evil in a certain way. When I you, we think in our our local, for example, the massive amounts of profit that is um, you know um, being reaped in um, at a, you know the level of uh, the grocery store owner, um, and um, and then all of the trickle down sort of marginalizations that happen whether it's the consumer low-income you know um, purchaser of food um, you know the producer of the food um, the packagers of food the shipments of food and all of the the industry attached to it um, just all the way through that that chain of of economy is just devastating um, and then we you know we situate that within a global context um, and we understand this this industry uh, worldwide as as uh, you know, not even just being about, um, you know, um, the swings and balance of scarcity and capital, but also like the whole uh, formation of, of nation states and, and, you know, banana republics and, you know, the long history of imperialism and colonialism that connects to, you know, through plantation economy or through, um, you know, the global industries of, you know, cotton or, or sugar and so on. It's just devastating. So when we pull those, I know cotton's not a food, by the way, but farming. <laughs> um, but when we pull those threads, um, you know, um, it's pretty quick to reveal um, our food systems are based on profound inequity. And, um unfortunately and so devastatingly i think connected to a kind of dissociative collective dissociation um you know from our relationship to food um so um 
And that's about consumerism generally. Like there is this way in which we we buy, buy, buy. Um, and again, whether it's from a low income or a, a absolutely fancy, you know, bougie, um, you know, Michelin star kind of consumption level, uh, whatever it is, there is this this um, disconnect um, from that process, from the industry, and from the idea of people's relationship and land, of course. Um, and so the devastating things that we're doing um, in terms of land, in terms of the you know, industries around um, beef farming, for example, or um, deforestation or, or chemical uh, runoff. And oh my gosh, like it goes on. Um, and we we uh, somehow have to put that aside to do our regular consumption patterns. So um, so for me, this book absolutely was a, a, um, a, an effort or a contribution um, as ever to the idea of sensitizing people to to ideas um, that we maybe normalize in our everyday. Um, it is, you know, um, the purview of a poet, I think, to 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 take up our everyday in in um, um, in deeper ways um, and to to draw attention to those kinds of details. And um, yeah, and I think like, you know, to trace it back to that that um, note about Emma's Acres, Emma's Acres, I'm very grateful for and, and I, I um you know, to be clear, I, I I don't represent the place, and I um I'm very much a, a volunteer. Um, they they uh, you know people know my name of course and everything, and they know some of the writing that I do, and I return it always uh, when I write on behalf of a place um, or a connection to people. Um, but I mean, our nickname is the Tomato Ladies. That's literally how they know Merce and I. It's like <laughs> I like I got a, yesterday when we were out there. One of the organizers was like, "Oh, just say hi to the Tomato Ladies." I hear from the speakerphone, and so there's something very wonderful about going to a place of humility and and uh, shared labor and community. So to me, that place, I'm so grateful for it, just being a grounding spot to to participate in the work and to learn from that. Um, and, um, and maybe, you know, contribute to an, a future way of being that is also obviously a historical way of being in another way, um, and to maybe do it differently. So, um, you know, and given the, the, the unfolding state of the world, like, you know, um, it is a dream to have access to land, to grow food, um, personally. Um, so, uh, yeah, grateful for it. Um, but you know, in in other ways too, it's it's always a heartbreak because it's it's not sustainable. Um, it's not land that that any of us own. Um, it's on lease from a city, a municipal municipality. Um, you know, I have to burn fossil fuels to get out there, and so on. So there's just this. It's never perfect, um, but yeah. Yeah, it's, it it's really like I was really interested in reading the collection because I'm doing research. Uh, on my own family's agricultural history okay. in this country um they came as settlers uh with intent one failed farmer and another my grand great grandparents came and farmed in Saskatchewan and um so it's very interesting to me to kind of reflect on the role that agriculture played in settler colonialism in this right. country and and I was in Saskatchewan last year doing research and people talk about breaking the land and I just that over and over again I heard those words breaking the mm -hmm. land breaking mm -hmm. and I just thought what a interesting three words to put together for a relate a relationship built with this country and with land and mm -hmm. with people like to break land 
Yeah, I think you've lit on something very important. And I think that it, and um, the other phrase that we often hear is the idea of groundbreaking and groundbreaking, uh, groundbreaking is often linked um, to the idea of development. Um, but yeah, no, it's, it's a, a deeply problematic um, concept. Um, and also, you know, as lang people who work with language, an important, a, a good one to explore and to, to think through um, in a poetic sense. Yeah. I wondered if you could talk a little bit about community and collaboration. I know those things are very important to you and the work that you do. How do those things uh, sustain and motivate the work that the creative work you do? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I mean, they they generally do uh, for all that I do. <laughs> so, but I'll talk in specific specifically relative to harrowings, I suppose. Um, so, um, I think of writing. Um, I've grown to to realize that writing can be a kind of um, address and correspondence that's um, through time. So um, if there's something meaningful about being able to put something to page that um, could be a, a future letter, um, you know, uh, or, you know, something that speaks to somebody down the road. Um, so one element of, of this work was was correspondence. Um, there's a, a group um, connected to Walls to Bridges, um, pretty um a pretty solid program that does a lot of education work inside prisons um, and folks picked up um, uh, my book, my previous book um, and a book by uh, Mercedes Ng as well. And they read and corresponded and did creative projects in response to that, um, which I was just so deeply honored by. Um, and, um, and I correspond um, with some people inside and, and sometimes I do that, um, you know, generally to strangers and sometimes I do that to people that I, with people that I know. Um, but one of the forms that, that, that takes sometimes is, is poems, um, and vice versa. So sometimes I receive art or poems from people, depending on how that's censored. Um, and so at a base level, there is that kind of correspondence in this book. Um, of course, I've spoken to um, this project of Emma's Acres, but just generally the mutual aid and work, you know, alongside my dear friend Mercedes um, and the community at Emma's Acres. So that collaborative sort of inspiration. Um, but my work over the years as an organizer and activist, um, you know, situated um, in the neighborhood known as the downtown east side of Vancouver for 20 years. Um, so much of the work around, you, you just didn't gather without food. You don't gather without those kinds of elements of home that need to be brought with us wherever we go when we're connecting with people who don't have access to proper homes. Um, so um, I learned a lot from that. And that is in this book as well. I learned a lot about um, what it meant to share plants and growing and seeds um, with people who, like me, are renters, um, or again, who are transient in, in ways that they don't wish to be, but it's still how important it is to still connect to soil, to growing, to life, um, to animals, to other beings, doing these, connecting to these things. Um, so yeah, that is in this book as well. And then the collaboration across time and space with this idea of diaspora, culture, ancestry, um, my roots um, relative to my African ancestry. Um, I've I've really, I've learned a lot about um, how to do that um, work of reconnecting. Um, I'm also something just to borrow, I suppose, from that idea of reconnecting, which I, um, I, I know a number of different experiences that people are having around that um, in terms of Indigenous 
um, culture and experience and nation. Um, there's something to that idea of reconnecting um, that I, uh, I, I makes sense to me um, about my experience of being Black in this nation state. So um, that idea of collaboration, not with people necessarily that I'll ever meet or that I have ever known and that are not necessarily my family, um, but somehow are of my people or I am of their people. Um, and what an honor. And so I I, um, I think that folds into this work as well in a deep way. Um, and to that, to that end, um, partly why this book has been such a, a peaceful thing for me to finish and to have out in the world. Um, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I've stopped asking people what they're working, what books they're working on. And instead I ask, what's inspiring the work that you're doing these days? Yeah, I appreciate that. Um, I am inspired right now by um, the idea of affinity. Um, that is a, a, a word that and an idea that I've been uh, exploring more deeply. Um, and I've been thinking about it in the age uh, of which the era that we're in, where abolition um, has become an increasingly um, acceptable framework um, within the context of our organizing. And I, I say that because um, for many, many years, self-identifying as an abolitionist, um, you know, as a member of joint effort and, and um, you know, that's been about a three decade kind of experience for me. And, and I, my early experiences of that was, was very highly stigmatized. Um, and people would say, you know, well, did we deal with that in the seventies or something? Or just like very ignorant frameworks about the idea of what abolition um, can mean. Um, so I think about what it means now that it's rolling off the tongues of, of thoughtful, progressive, interesting people everywhere, including deeply the practice of many artists and poets, um, which is brilliant. It's a brilliant moment and I'm excited. Um, but I'm also like, sadly, I guess from my own, uh, very pragmatic, I think, and very practical and a little boring sometimes when I think about what does it mean on the ground for us to relate, um, given the state of things. And I, um, you know, as we collapse into perpetual crisis and and conflict, um, you know, most of us, that's, that's a regular part of our everydays um, and has been for all of our lives. Um, what does it mean to deepen our senses of affinity and connection. So I've been thinking about that. Um, I've also been thinking about other forms of writing. So I've been practicing um, more uh, writing in the context of art um, and, and responding and working with artists, um, which is an, a continuation of my professional practice. I've been working with artists for a very long time, last 10, 15 years, um, but doing more so of that as a writer and enjoying the essay form, um, poetic prose, and um, and dialogue and storytelling. So I think it probably means that I'm doing something in the realm of of fiction and or creative nonfiction. Um, but I'm not so I'm not so worried about genre work. It's just um, but the idea that I'm so, I'm suddenly much more deeply interested in improper syntax. So I'm kind of excited about that and um, and what I can what I will manage to get on the page. Um, and yeah, there's more, but I feel I don't want to bore you with my my rambles. Um, but um, but thinking, um, been crafting some performance works too. So I've been um, something I really enjoyed in the pandemic was this few opportunities where people commissioned me to do, um, you know, whether it's recorded or live, but performance pieces. And I don't usually get asked to do that quite. And I um, so it was a real opportunity to kind of get more into the side of of the spokennessness um, of um, poetry. Yeah, so those are some of the things that are on my mind.
That was Cecily Nicholson. Cecily's book, Harrowings, was a finalist for the 2023 Dorothy Livesay Poetry Prize. If you would like to find out more about the BC and Yukon Book Prizes, visit our website at bcyukonbookprizes.com. You can also find us on social media, on Instagram, and Facebook. Next time on Writing the Coast, you'll hear my conversation with Michael Hathaway. Michael's book, What a Mushroom Lives For, won the 2023 Jim Diva Prize for Writing That Provokes, and was a finalist for the 2023 Hubert Evans Nonfiction Prize. Thanks for listening to Writing the Coast.